True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The young woman smiles and gets into the vehicle. She's headed to Cape Town, she says, and she's grateful for the lift. She's petite and quiet, barely saying anything as the car speeds along the national road, leaving her small town home in the distance. She was likely picked up because she looked so small and defenceless on the side of the road, but soon she will prove that assumption horribly wrong, and although the driver will not be the object of her wrath, soon a resident of Lakeside, near Cape Town, will not be so lucky. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 55, The Murder of Sandra Malcolm. into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Janet and Karen for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. We also have two new ways that you can support the show. You can head over to Audible, Google Play Books or Apple Books and purchase the Krugersdorp cult killings by Jana Marx, which I narrated. Or you can get your health and beauty needs from King Online and get a 10% discount by using the code TCSA10 at checkout. We still have our amazing giveaway running with King Online, which is ending on the 31st of July. All you need to do is purchase from King Online's amazing range to the value of 400 rand or more, and use the TCSA 10 code to get entered into the draw to win your share of 2,350 rand worth of brand new true crime and crime fiction books. Be sure to get your entries in before the closing date. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keep the show growing and improving. The case I'm covering today involves graphic injuries to an elderly victim. If this would be triggering to you, please feel free to skip this episode. I will, however, also let you know when I'm going to be discussing the graphic injuries so that you can choose to skip over those sections if you prefer. I chose this case to cover predominantly because the victim's story deserved to be told. Her murder was a horrifying example of kindness betrayed. This case did not get a lot of media attention, predominantly because the accused took her plea deal and the case went straight to sentencing. The offender in this case, though, will make you think twice about female offenders, particularly young female offenders. Unfortunately, there are no court documents available online for this case, 
so some questions about the offender's actions may remain unanswered. To research this episode, I used several media articles, as well as an episode of Opsias Spur, a CakeNet production. So let's get into episode 55, The Murder of Sandra Malcolm. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Sandra Malcolm was born in Monifeith, Scotland in 1941. Around the time of her birth, which was two years into the Second World War, the town of her birth was an important part of the war effort. Its foundry was being used to supply the English with their armaments, and as a result, those men who were not serving in the army were working in the foundry. Scottish involvement in the war unfortunately also made Monifeith and nearby Dundee targets and the German Air Force, known as the Luftwaffe, bombed the area in an attack now known as the Clydebank Blitz. Thousands of Scottish civilians were killed in the bombing attacks, and many more were left homeless. I think that it is difficult for anyone that has not lived through a war like this to understand what life was really like for both children and adults during this time. I found the account of a Monifeith local on the internet who shared his memories of that time. He was, of course, quite a bit older than Sandra Malcolm would have been, but I think it helps to give us a good idea of what she might have lived through. During the war in Monifeith and surrounding areas at night, the government implemented a no-lights order. This was done because the Luftwaffe would look for lights on the ground to help them figure out where towns and villages were to bomb. So as soon as darkness fell over Monifeith, the residents had no choice but to hunker down in their homes without any form of light. The gentleman whose account I read recalled volunteering with other locals to be on fire watch This meant that they would huddle in the dark around important buildings like hospitals to ensure that if anything caught fire, it could be put out quickly. The young man, who would have been no more than a teenager at the time, was fast-tracked through his apprenticeship to start working in the local foundry to make armaments for the war efforts. With most of the men having been called to war, and only teenage boys remaining behind for the most part, the female residents of Monifeith were called upon to work in the foundry, and it's very likely that Sandra Malcolm's mother may have played a role here too. In digging into the history of Monifeith, I came across a John Malcolm, who was a headmaster at the local school in 1918, and because Sandra's married name was Malcolm, I can only assume from this that she must have continued to grow up in the Monifeith area 
and married into the Malcolm family there. I chose to paint a picture of what Sandra's childhood might have been like, because I think it probably played a role in who she would be when she grew up. Life during the war and even for years afterwards was extremely difficult, and anyone that grew up during this time deeply understood what it was like to be without. On a personal note, my own mother was born in Europe in the week after the Second World War ended. Her mother arrived at the hospital and was turned away because the hospital was filled with wounded soldiers. So my mother took her first breath on a grass verge outside the hospital, with the midwife occasionally glancing in my grandmother's direction to ensure that there were no complications. It is clear to me, even now, how growing up in that time shaped my mother. Food was in short supply, and even things that we take for granted now, like soap, were luxuries during that time. If you've ever been scolded for throwing away that last tiny little piece of soap by your mother, grandmother, or great-grandmother, then you've probably grown up with someone who was a child during the Second World War. Sandra Malcolm would go on to marry and have two daughters of her own. In 1981, the Malcolm family headed for the sunny shores of South Africa, and Sandra's daughters attended high school here. In 1997, the Malcolm family would have been well and truly settled in Cape Town, South Africa, and Sandra Malcolm could have no idea that 200 kilometres away in the sleepy mountain town of Citrusdal, a young girl was being born that year, whose paths would eventually cross with her own in the most horrendous of ways. Cherie Prince appears to have had a less-than-ideal childhood herself, although for very different reasons than Sandra Malcolm. Actually, it's very difficult to know exactly what Cherie's childhood was like with any amount of certainty, because even those who would eventually be tasked with finding this out would admit that they'd received conflicting versions. All who knew her agreed, though, that Cherie was a very withdrawn and shy child. Citrusdal is a small town at the foot of the Cedarburg Mountains. Its current population is about 5,000 people. And if you want to work in the area, your primary option are the surrounding citrus farms. That, of course, is seasonal work. So there is also a significant population of unemployed people and, sadly, also a major culture of substance abuse. Just to give you an idea, in a town that has no primary school and only one high school, there are three legal bottle stores and, no doubt, countless illegal alcohol outlets within communities too. Cherie's aunt would allege that they'd started to notice that there was something different about Cherie after she suffered a bout of what she called meningitis. Now, it's important to note that her aunt was not certain about this diagnosis, 
and it's also likely that Cherie had instead contracted encephalitis. The similarities between the two conditions would not necessarily be evident to everyone. Both are infections within the various layers of the brain. The reason that I wonder if it was not perhaps encephalitis is because the most common form of encephalitis, which is caused by the herpes simplex virus, the same virus that causes cold sores, is most common in people under 20 years of age. This form of encephalitis is also known to cause damage to brain tissue in the frontal lobe, which is the part of the brain that controls behavior and personality. It is not uncommon for people that have lived through herpes simplex encephalitis to report behavior changes ranging from mild to severe. Whether or not this happened to Cherie Prince, of course, is up for debate, because we don't know for sure that she had encephalitis. It's also very difficult to say because she was still a child when this happened, so it may also have just been pure coincidence that she had some form of brain infection and then also started to exhibit strange behaviours. The strange behaviours may well have been inevitable and not linked to the condition at all. What we do know is that by age 13, Cherie Prince had already drawn the attention of law enforcement. It would emerge that when Cherie was 13 years old, she was charged with the indecent sexual assault of an eight-year-old boy. The child had been sitting on her lap, and she had begun to fondle his genitals. The child's parents, on discovering the abuse, laid charges but it's very likely that due to her age, no further action was taken against her, and since she was minor, there is no public record of whether she was found guilty or not. This would not be Cherie's last brush with the law, though, and she soon began to get a reputation as a thief. She frequently broke into homes in the area, and it became clear that she was funding a habit Cherie Prince, at 15 years old, was addicted to Tuk. Tuk is the South African street name for crystal methamphetamine, also known as crystal meth or just meth in other parts of the world. In South Africa, Tuk has become a drug of choice, especially in poorer communities because it's relatively cheap and easy to get. The effects of tick on the brain are well-researched and pronounced. Even occasional use can lead to a condition known as tick psychosis, in which overstimulation of one part of the brain by the drug causes a breakdown in the emotional center, and addicts experience distorted feelings of certain emotions, including anger and fear. This may lead to paranoia, and the belief that someone is out to get them. Although tick or meth psychosis is usually experienced for the most part while the addict is using the drug, it is not uncommon for the psychosis to last months or even years after the person has stopped using the drug.
the psychosis can become so pronounced that it can be triggered by the simple act of thinking about purchasing the drug. The United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime says that although tick is highly addictive, it actually has a far greater recovery rate than some other drugs like heroin. They also state, however, that although an adolescent addict in recovery will physically bounce back quite quickly, the emotional and psychological effects of the drug will never be reversed. Because an adolescent's emotional center is still developing, if they become addicted to tick during that period of development, like Cherie did, their development is skewed and their trajectory is forever changed. Although it is not all doom and gloom for adolescent addicts, and they still can live full and successful lives, the full potential they had pre-drug use will never again be attained. In 2013, when she was 16 years old, Cherie posted on Facebook that she would rather quit school than give up her youth. And she did. She left school in grade 10 and never returned. Unfortunately, we know very little about what she was up to in the years after she left school and before she hits our radar again. But we do know that on the 13th of April 2015, when she was 18 years old, without telling her parents, Cherie left Citrus Doll. With a bag containing very few personal effects, she hitchhiked to Cape Town, arriving in Mitchell's Plain on the 14th of April. On arrival in the area, Cherie broke into a home and stole several items, including cell phones and laptops. She then broke into an empty house and smashed a window, which alerted a neighbour. The police were called and Cherie was arrested. Cherie told officers that she was from Citrus Doll. They fingerprinted her and processed her. Being as young as she was, it seems though that the police wanted to see if they could get family to assist her, rather than keeping her in jail. Cherie had claimed that she'd just been looking for somewhere to sleep when she'd broken into the home. She directed officers to her aunt's house in Stiernbach. Her aunt says that she was very surprised to hear that her niece was in the area, but not entirely surprised that she'd been arrested. The woman explained to officers that, as she put it, Cherie was not mentally all there. She told them that the girl had been using Tuck for a while, and that as a result her behaviour had been erratic. The police thanked the woman for sharing this information. They said that they would explain this to the people that wanted to lay charges against her and see if they would not rather agree to having her sent home to Citrusdal. The next day, Cherie was released into the custody of her aunt, with the promise that she would arrange for the girl to get back to Citrusdal. Cherie hung around her aunt's house for less than a day before disappearing again. It would later emerge that Cherie had wandered around the area before arriving at the home of a family friend. 
She would sleep over at this woman's house on the night of the 17th of April. Cherie herself would say that on that night, she had consumed a significant amount of alcohol and had been very drunk. When she'd gone to lay down in bed, another resident of the home had come to lay in the same bed. She'd become annoyed and fled the home, stealing a handbag as she left. On her way out, she'd kicked over a pot of hot food that was on the floor and burnt her foot. Cherie would spend the next few hours again wandering around, and we now know that she was looking for a house to break into. As dawn crept closer, Cherie found her way out of Stiernbach and into the neighbouring suburb of Lakeside. The suburb is close to the affluent area of Marina de Gama, and it's a well-off area. And in 2015, it had an average property value of 2.8 million rand. It was in this leafy suburb that Sandra Malcolm had come to settle after the death of her husband in 2013. Now 74, Sandra was living alone in a townhouse complex called Capri Muse. Sandra's daughter would later say that her mother had suffered depression after losing her husband, but had gradually recovered. She volunteered at a hospice charity shop, made dresses and cards, and went to gym a few times a week. Sandra's daughter regularly visited her mother, and they had plans to go out for lunch on the 18th of April. We only have Cherie Prince's version to go by for us to know what happened next, but she says that she was walking past the townhouse complex and noticed that one of the bathroom windows on Unit 7 was open. She says that she climbed through the window into Sandra Malcolm's home. Once inside, she started to move around the house. There are two versions about how Sandra came to know that Cherie was in her home. One is that Sandra had heard a noise and woken up to find Cherie in her bathroom. The other is that Cherie walked through the house, found Sandra sleeping, and woke her up. The latter explanation would seem strange to me, unless her motive had not just been robbery, and evidence brought to light later may actually support that robbery was not the motive at all. Either way, Sandra Malcolm became aware that there was a stranger in her home. When she confronted the girl, Cherie says that she'd told the woman that she was just looking for help because she'd injured her foot. Sandra Malcolm did not call the police. She clearly did not feel threatened by this petite young girl who looked much younger than her 18 years. Perhaps if it had been a man standing in front of her, her reaction may have been different, but we'll never know. Instead of phoning the police, Sandra Malcolm offered to help Cherie with her injured foot. The woman carefully cleaned it with disinfectant and then bandaged it. Cherie says that Sandra then offered the girl tea and toast. The older woman and younger girl sat in Sandra's kitchen and drank tea and ate toast. At some point, Cherie says, 
Sandra said that she thought it would probably be a good idea if they called an ambulance to take Cherie to the hospital for proper treatment for her foot. She was concerned that it would become infected. Cherie says that she quickly told the woman she did not want her to call paramedics. She then started to think that perhaps Sandra was actually trying to get the paramedics there so that the police could be alerted. As she sat sipping her tea, she says she then started to believe that Sandra had drugged her and if she didn't take action, she was going to fall asleep and wake up in a police cell. Cherie Prince then stood up and moved to a drawer. She pulled out a knife and attacked Sandra. A post-mortem would count at least 24 stab wounds. The final count would be difficult to determine, though, because of what 18-year-old Cherie did next. Please note that the following details are extremely graphic. When Sandra Malcolm was no longer breathing, Cherie says that she realized she needed to get rid of her body. Her thought process during this time is difficult to follow, but she'd later said that she planned to live in Sandra's house. At some point, Cherie sends her father a message telling him that she was in big trouble and that she needed help. When he didn't respond, she took matters into her own hands. Using the knife that she'd stabbed Sandra with, Cherie decapitated the 74-year-old woman. Sandra's stomach was also cut open and her internal organs were removed. Cherie also attempted to remove the woman's limbs, but succeeded only with her arms. She later said that she'd gone to search the property for an axe to remove her legs, but hadn't found anything suitable. The girl took a dustbin from the courtyard and wheeled it into the kitchen, disposing of some of Sandra's remains in the dustbin and wheeling it back out into the courtyard. At some point, Cherie seemed to realise that it was illogical that she stay there. The kitchen was covered in blood and some body parts remained scattered about. She grabbed her belongings and fled to her aunt's home. Devastatingly, Sandra's first great-grandson had been born on the morning of the 18th of April as his great-grandmother took her last breath. Family tried in vain to get hold of her to share the exciting news, and when they continued to fail to make contact, Sandra's grandson had gone to the townhouse to check on his grandmother. When he received no response from her, he forced entry into the home and found a scene worse than anything I think we could begin to imagine. The horrified young man immediately called police and forensics teams descended upon the house. The investigation would be relatively short. A fingerprint obtained from the murder weapon was found to be a match to fingerprints taken from Cherie Prince when she was arrested for the housebreaking just four days before, and a warrant of arrest was issued. By this time, though, Cherie had already gone back to Citrusdal. 
Her aunt would say that she'd arrived at her house that day and hadn't behaved as though anything was wrong. She'd simply asked the woman to help her arrange to get back home. Her parents would also say that they had no inkling about what had gone on in Cape Town when Cherie returned to Citrusdal. She had seemed her normal self, and the first time they realised anything was wrong was when the police had turned up at their door and arrested their daughter. Police would find items from Sandra's home in Cherie's bedroom when they arrested her. Her foot was still bandaged with the very bandage that Sandra Malcolm had wrapped it in. As news spread of the horrific murder, the community was up in arms. It seemed clear to everyone that there had to have been someone else involved in this crime. How was it possible that this petite teenager had inflicted that level of damage on another human being? The evidence, though, supported the story that Cherie would eventually tell. There was no sign that anyone else had ever been on the scene. Only Cherie's fingerprints and DNA were found, and the blood spatter evidence supported a single perpetrator of violence being involved. Cherie readily admitted that she had committed the crime. It didn't take her long to provide a full confession to police, but it would be another three years before Cherie Prince would stand before a judge. The nature of the crime and her family's allegations that Cherie suffered from mental health issues meant that the court wanted to ensure a full psychiatric evaluation was done. Cherie was also exhibiting very strange behaviour. She did not seem to fully comprehend the enormity of what she had done and kept asking when she could go home to look after her sick mother. It would also take a very long time for this assessment to be completed because of all the conflicting evidence that was produced about Cherie's past. When social workers and psychologists tried to interview people from her community, most clammed up. Others gave clearly fictitious accounts of Cherie's life in Citrusdal. Cherie herself often would refuse to talk to psychologists, Slowly, though, they managed to develop a rapport with her, and they soon realised that there was very little wrong with Cherie Prince, at least from a mental illness perspective. Cherie told a psychologist that when she had walked down Lear Road in the early hours of the 18th of April, she had told herself that if anyone got in her way, she was going to kill them. She also admitted that she had fantasised about killing someone from the age of 10. Cherie Prince was found fit to stand trial, but the psychologist did say that she definitely had antisocial personality traits, which had been evident in her behaviour as far back as they could trace. Duplo, celebrated lecturer in psychology, and regular expert witness in criminal cases, says that he observed significant psychopathic tendencies in Cherie. He goes to great pains to explain 
that female offenders are capable of violence that is just as horrific as male offenders. And although he understands how the public may want to believe that an 18-year-old girl could not be capable of that, he points out that Shanae van Heerden, who horrifically murdered Michael van Eyck, removed his face and sewed it into a mask, was also just 19 years old at the time of her crime. Van Heerden was the first female offender in South Africa to be given the official status of highly dangerous offender, meaning that her possible parole will never be handled by a parole board, but rather by a judge, and it is highly unlikely that she will ever be released from jail. Cherie Prince admitted being guilty of murdering Sandra Malcolm, so after it was eventually determined that she was indeed fit to face the legal consequences of her actions, the proceedings moved to sentencing. A journalist who sat through the court proceedings remembered originally thinking that Cherie Prince was not in a normal state of mind. She appeared not to really understand what was going on, but the journalist soon realised that it was all just an act. On a few occasions, the woman said that Cherie had looked up, made direct eye contact with Sandra Malcolm's family, and pulled a middle finger at them. She did the same to journalists who took her photograph. Cherie would not take the stand in mitigation of sentence. In fact, she struggled to find anyone to testify on her behalf. This would cause several more delays in proceedings, as her defence attorney regularly asked the judge for more time to try and find someone to testify as a character witness for the girl. Cherie's own father refused to take the stand. At one point, her uncle was going to testify for her, but then also changed his mind. Eventually, the judge called it. The Malcolm family had already experienced enough delays. Cherie's last-ditch attempt at reducing her sentence was a letter she wrote to the family. In it, she expressed regret at having taken Sandra's life and asked that the woman's family forgive her. Unfortunately, this letter would mean very little when a social worker testified for the state that Cherie had told her that although she felt bad for killing Sandra, quote, she was old and had lived her life, end quote. This statement made it very clear that Cherie minimised Sandra's death in her own mind and that she did not really feel the immense regret she claimed to. Sandra's family testified to the enormous impact that her murder had had on their family, particularly her grandson, who would have to live with the scenes of horror he'd witnessed for the rest of his life. Sandra's daughter told the court that all they asked was that the most severe sentence possible be handed down and that society be protected from Cherie Prince. The psychologist too would testify that there seemed to be very little possibility that the girl could be rehabilitated, 
and that the only way to keep society safe from her would be to keep her incarcerated for as long as possible. During one of the many breaks in proceedings, Sandra's family took her ashes to Scotland, where they were scattered in the same place that they had scattered her husband's ashes two years before. Eventually, in 2018, three years after the murder of Sandra Malcolm, 21-year-old Cherie Prince was sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder. She was also given an additional sentence for housebreaking, which would run concurrently with the life sentence. Cherie Prince will be required to serve 25 years before she is eligible for parole. She will be just 43 years old at that time, almost half the age her victim was when she brutally slaughtered her. If you were familiar with this case before listening to this episode, and you're wondering why I didn't refer to the episode by the moniker that Cherie Prince would eventually be given by the media, the Lakeside Butcher, it's because I've made a decision to move away from referring to murderers by any sensationalist monikers given to them. It may seem like a small thing, but I think the victim deserves to have her name on the episode and not a media-created label. There is also ongoing research that seems to point to some killers actually enjoying the monikers that are given to them and even working with the media to create these nicknames. Obviously, that wasn't the case with Cherie, but we don't know if she gets some sort of satisfaction around the use of that phrase. So just in case, I won't be using it. It's difficult enough to understand why any human being would want to kill another so horrifically, especially when the victim was nothing but kind to the perpetrator. But it is understandably even more difficult to picture Cherie Prince committing the acts that she did. I guess that's probably the reason that we seek to find reasons for her behaviour. Perhaps it was the damage caused by the encephalitis. Maybe it was the drug use. Maybe it was her difficult childhood. Maybe it was all of those things. And maybe it was none of them. Maybe Cherie Prince did not change after contracting encephalitis. Perhaps she was like that all along. Maybe, just maybe, she was born that way. Did all of those other things contribute to what she eventually did? Absolutely. They could only have contributed. But I don't really know that they were the cause. The fact that she had homicidal ideations from the age of 10 and that she displayed paedophilic tendencies at the age of 13, all before she ever started using Tuck, makes it pretty evident that her drug use only made worse what was already there. I think her paedophilic behaviour is something that is important for us to point out too, because that's another condition we, we don't always think about crossing gender lines. Cherie Prince admitted to becoming sexually aroused by abusing an eight-year-old boy when she was 13. It is in fact at that very age that people living with paedophilia 
most often report having their first inkling that they're aroused by children, and also the age at which many start to abuse children. So did Cherie Prince kill Sandra Malcolm because she was paranoid and believed the woman was out to get her? No, I don't personally believe that to be true. I think Cherie Prince knew exactly what she was doing. But of course, it's impossible to try and understand the disordered thought process of someone like Cherie. We do know that she harbored the desire to kill before she did. We also know that Sandra Malcolm presented absolutely no threat to her. And we certainly know that the dismemberment of her body was completely unnecessary. Her minimization of her acts afterwards by saying that Sandra was old and had lived her life is further proof to me that this was an act of a pretty lucid person. It is a terrifying prospect that Cherie Prince will ever be back on the streets. At 43, she will still be more than capable of wreaking havoc and living out her fantasies. Perhaps the most frightening thing about this young woman is that she looks so sweet. If you look at photographs of her, she just looks like the loveliest young woman. But behind that smile and shy demeanour is something truly terrifying. I have no doubt that if Cherie had not been caught for this crime, she would have killed again. Just like Shawnee van Heerden, she holds the very real risk of having been a serial murderer. The fact that she also had paedophilic tendencies makes me wonder how long it would have been until she took a child. Sandra Malcolm was well-loved in her community, and it's not difficult to see why. She displayed her kindness and empathy in how she cared for her murderer just minutes before her death. I have no doubt that Sandra looked at Cherie and saw an injured young girl who was really just a child and her maternal instincts kicked in. She likely did not feel threatened at all by this slight girl with her big beaming smile and sad eyes. Sandra was due for a holiday in Scotland in May of 2015. But when a tortured mind, disguised in the body of a child, pushed her way into her home that day, all future plans were destroyed for Sandra. I can only hope that her family are able to remember her as she appears in a photograph on her daughter's wedding day, smiling, happy, graceful and warm. But I can't help but believe that those memories must be slightly scarred by the knowledge of how she left this earth. And now as her killer serves out her life sentence, so does Sandra's family in the knowledge that it is possible that one day Cherie Prince may stalk our streets again. Rest gently, Sandra.
Thank you for listening to episode 55, The Murder of Sandra Malcolm. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with a Spotlight Minisode and possibly a very special and exciting announcement. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon. Mm-hmm.